How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity to gather together this evening to fellowship around the teaching of your word, that your word truly enlightens us as to how to think about all categories of life and gives us accurate information about the history of mankind and your plan and purposes in human history, that the your revelation, because you inspired it, it is without error in the original manuscripts, it is infallible, your revelation is in itself sufficient to give us all the information we need to know. Now, Father, as we continue our study about the judgment on the antediluvian civilization in Noah's flood, we pray that you would help us to understand these issues, to be able to see how accurate these episodes are in contrast to what is so often believed and taught in modern situations based on the theory of evolution. We pray that you would encourage us with Noah's faith and trust in you despite the uh, pressures of his day, just as we must face, we must trust you despite the pressures of our day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis 7. Genesis chapter 7, and tonight we should make our way through the two chapters that cover the ark, Genesis 7, or the flood itself, Genesis 7, and eight, and that is because there is a tremendous amount of repetition here, and the purpose for that repetition is to reinforce the actual historical events. These eight people who get on the ark are historical people. They actually existed. They are not some mythological forebear. This is not some story that was invented to explain uh, some um, ancient development of tribal diversity or anything of that nature but that this is grounded in fact. That's why I gave you the handout showing the comparison and contrast of the biblical account of the flood with other flood stories. There are flood stories in every uh, ethnic group throughout uh, the planet. They are all distorted memories of the biblical event. And you see, and I'll point out a few comparisons here and there as we go through this evening. But we are beginning in Genesis chapter 7, so you will need to open your Bibles to Genesis 7. With two chapters of data, I didn't want to put all of the scriptures uh, on the, on the, in the PowerPoint presentation. So last time, in the la- really in the last couple of lessons, what we focused on was the coming of the judgment of the flood. And I focused on Hebrews 11.7 because the issue here 
It's not merely the historical event of the flood. Now, that's a that's an issue for us today because it's challenged by so-called modern scholarship and liberal Protestant uh, Christianity because they don't want to trust the Bible. So at the very root of all of this is the issue of of bibliology, the, the study of the Bible, the doctrines of the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. So whenever you go through Genesis 6 through 9, there has to be a certain amount of attention paid to the apologetic aspect demonstrating that this is an, an episode, a literary episode that hangs together, it's historically accurate, and is feasible and demonstrable. So we spent some time on that in previous lessons. Then the last two lessons, I went to Hebrews 11.7, because what we see in Hebrews 11.7 was the emphasis on Noah's faith, his trust in God, trust in the doctrine that he uh, had. And that passage read, By faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You see, we have a historical situation in in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 that describes this, this judgment salvation. More information is given to us about this universal worldwide judgment during Noah's time than on the creation and the fall itself. Therefore, we see that this is truly a significant event. It is significant not only for the historical dimension, but because of its significance spiritually. And see, this is the difference in Scripture. There's history in Scripture. But theology in Christianity is grounded in the reality of human history. Uh, you look at other other uh, religions such as Buddhism or Hinduism or Shintoism or you know New Age voodoo mysticism, and this stuff is not grounded in history. You can change all kinds of beliefs on history, and it doesn't affect those religious beliefs. But the Bible is grounded in historical veracity. If these events didn't happen the way the Bible says they happened, then the theology, the doctrine, the doctrinal application that derives from those events is null and void. So we spend a certain amount of time demonstrating the veracity of these events and the validity of the history. One of the things that comes across in, in the sixth chapter of Genesis is the size of the ark itself. And, of course, the major issue, let me back up a minute, the major issue in the whole discussion on the ark today and the flood is whether it's a local flood or a universal flood, whether it's just some small local flood that took place in the Mesopotamian Valley in the Valley of the Euphrates and Tigris Rivers, or whether it's this recently floated theory that somehow there was a flood that caused the Black Sea to rise and wipe out several civilizations there and then drain out into the Mediterranean these are all local flood theories, and it's interesting. It's not always true, but it's interesting that people who tend to diminish the literalness of Genesis 1, that is, they hold to some sort of a day-age view, or in some cases a gap theory, end up diminishing the significance of the universal flood. Now, one there's one person out there today, Hugh Ross, who is a uh, phys- physicist, who is very popular in a number of circles, and he's on some television programs, 
and he argues for not only a day age view or actually it's more what is called a framework hypothesis and this framework hypothesis says that there's not the genesis 1 doesn't describe six literal consecutive 24 hour days that is monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday and um as a literal 24-hour day, defined as it is in context, but that these represent frameworks, and there's an overlap in the frameworks, and they're not literal 24-hour days. And that way you can compromise and you can assimilate all the modern evolutionary theories into the Bible. But to do so, you have to, you have to just throw out any kind of accurate, accurate exegesis. The sad thing is that after... After about 40 years of the impact of Whitcomb and Morris's book, The Genesis Flood, which truly brought a lot of the seminaries back to a literal interpretation of Genesis 1, we're losing that ground again. Now, you may not know this, but in, in probably in the 40s and the 50s, there was more and more of a move towards some sort of modification like a day-age view of Genesis 1 or a framework hypothesis or th- what they call threshold evolution or progressive creationism. These are all different terms for avoiding the, imp- the, the clear implication of Genesis 1 that these are six, actually seven, 24-hour day, day periods. When the Genesis flood came out, it provided one of the first of many clear, scientifically based defenses of the literalness of the text, that, that you could take Genesis 1 and Genesis 6 through 9 in a literal manner and, and it had certain implications scientifically and that those models that you created from a Genesis, from a literal Genesis fit and explain the data that one discovered in the, either the laboratory or out in the world of geology in a better way than the evolutionary explanation. But that's being lost today. In fact, information I have indicates that there's only one professor left in the Old Testament faculty at Dallas Seminary that believes in literal 24-hour days in Genesis 1, which is an abomination. And yet nobody is raising uh, that as an issue today as they as they should. Furthermore, there are numerous other schools that are following in the same path. It's not just Dallas Seminary, but it's other schools are finding ways to avoid that. Furthermore, we have a problem in some, uh, in other churches where they put an emphasis on what I call the evolutionary gap view, which tries to ram, cram, and jam uh, the evolutionary periods in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, that if you do that and you say that all the fossils, fossilization, all the stratification in, uh, in the sedimentary rock on the Earth's crust was all formed by the judgment on Satan in, in that period between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, then there, what you're left with is a scenario where there's no evidence at all in the geologic, in, 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 in geology of a universal cataclysm, cataclysm as described in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. So here you come to, so that reduces the impact of a literal interpretation of Genesis 6 through 9. And so this is what it boils down to, is just as in prophecy, you also have to go back to the first 11 chapters of Genesis and say, are we going to apply consistently 
our hermeneutic or our principle of interpretation of a plain, literal understanding of the Scripture. And what happens is that that in terms of the pressure from modern culture, people tend to to waffle, and they yield to that pressure and begin to try to change the meaning of the text, and yet their study after study after study after study validates the conclusions that are being arrived at for the most part by creation science. Now, the last couple of weeks, not really the last couple of weeks, but the last couple of times that I've been out of town on a Wednesday, you have seen the two videos, which I think are really important. And during the last year, you all have seen some great videos. You may not have appreciated all of them. I think there was one that was a little boring. But these are really important. In fact, last week you watched the one called The Deluge by Dr. John Morris. And I was at the Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference, and our keynote speaker last week was Dr. John Morris. So, and he doesn't look like he did in that old video. I first met John back when we were both, uh, I think he was like two years out of college, and I had, and it was the summer, I was about, I think we're about the same age. I was too. I was, uh, he might be a little older than me. Um, and uh, we I, we were at Camp Penile at a Christian camp, and and we were we were both there during the week. He was teaching, and I was working there. And back then, he had dark hair, and I did too. We look quite different now. In fact, he shaved off his mustache because it was so white. But we had a we had a wonderful time last week, and he brought in some great information about Mount St. Helens, which was the video we showed three or four weeks ago when I was gone. And that information, so I'm going to try to pull in a little information from that tonight as we go through Genesis 7 through 8. Now, the issue, as I said, the issue we're dealing with here is, was the flood universal or local? Looking at it from the viewpoint of the Scripture, there's no need for the ark of this size to be built if it's just a local flood. Remember, it takes Noah a 100 years to build the ark. Why would he need to build an ark? If he's got a 100-year warning, why not just move if it's a local flood? I mean, he could walk all in a 100 years, he could walk around the whole earth. So that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Furthermore, if it's a local flood, why would he need to build an ark the size described in the Scripture, which is roughly 450 feet by 75 feet? And here you have a picture of the ark next to a school bus, and it just gives you some idea of how large the ark was. And we've gone through these details in the past. But the ark as a vessel was not exceeded in size, although there is some evidence I mentioned a couple of classes ago from uh, that there were some Chinese vessels built that were not quite this large but were pretty large, and this was... Uh, hundreds of years ago, and they gradually became smaller. But the first modern vessel to be built that was any larger than the Ark was built by the Pacific and Orient uh, uh, Ship Company, and it was the Himalaya, and it measured 240 240 feet. uh, Excuse me. In 1958, the, the largest vessel that existed was the Himalaya, which was 240 feet by 35 feet. Now, remember, the ark was 450 feet by 75 feet, so it was 210 feet 
longer and 40 feet wider. Then in that year, Isambard K. Brunei built the ship, the Great Eastern, which measured 692 feet by 83 feet by 30 feet and was approximately 19,000 tons and was five times the tonnage of any ship then built. In fact, it was another 40 years right at the end of the 19th century before another vessel that was larger than the ark was built. So this is a, an enormous ship. Another aspect of the ark in terms of its design is that the ratio of the length to the uh, breadth was 6 to 1. This makes it an extremely stable uh, vessel, one that would not be turned uh, over very easily. The, in, co- and in comparison, the Queen Elizabeth one had a ratio of 8.6 to 1 and was a vessel, of course, designed more for a little more for speed than the Ark was. There was another vessel, the Great Britain, designed by Brunei, which had dimensions of 322 feet by 51 feet by 32 and a half feet, which had ratios that were similar to the Ark. But in term, from what I understand and what I've read in terms of the engineering going into the Ark, in terms of its uh, seagoing ability, that it was an extremely stable uh, vessel. It was about uh, 45 feet high and thus displaced about half of its height, so it rode rather low in the water, which would have allowed it to have taken waves in excess of 100 feet without turning over. It would almost have to go 90 degrees before it could capsize. And that's important because of what it had to handle in terms of the waves and the storms generated by the flood itself. So all of this goes to show that, that according to the biblical information, this would not be the kind of vessel built to handle a local flood. Now let's see how Genesis 1 describes the situation where Noah brings the animals on the ark. Genesis 7, 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone... I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. And the emphasis in this verse is on the character of Noah. He is righteous, and as I have said before, this righteousness is his positional righteousness by virtue of his uh, faith in Christ as presented in the Old Testament because he was a believer. His inheritance that is related to this in Hebrews 11.7 where we're told that he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. He receives plus R at salvation, and then because of his spiritual growth and dependence upon God and trust on God, trust in God, he is qualified for his inheritance. And that was the point of the last two classes, to emphasize the fact that, that we receive uh, imputed righteousness from God at the instant of salvation, but it's what we do with our spiritual life that is the basis for our inheritance in terms of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Genesis 7-2, we read, You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean too, a male and his Female, verse 3, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. So what we have here is two categories of animals. 
First of all, you have clean animals and you have the unclean animals. Since Moses does not take time to define uh, how we know which is which here, we can assume that that it follows the categorization that is laid out in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14 uh, for the Jews in the Mosaic Law. And there we have clear definition of what is clean and what was unclean. Among the, and remember what we're dealing with here is clean and unclean kinds. And a kind is not a species. This is one of the mistakes that is so often made from people who critique the Bible. It's even made by some, um, some teachers of the Bible trying to equate kinds with species. But there are many, many more species than, than necessary. For example, you have in the dog, let's say in a broader uh, genus, and that's probably what a kind is related to somewhere between a genus and a family. You have a, a relationship between a coyote, which is one species, and a, a St. Bernard or uh, just a regular domestic dog, which is another species. Yet they can interbreed. And you also have a fox, which is part of the dog family. And so all of these are part of the a broader categorization of family, and if the biblical kind is closer to that of a genus or a family, then of course you have a lot fewer animals that you have to get on to the ark, and you end up with approximately only 13 genus or kinds of clean animals, according to the biblical categorization. They had to be, they chewed the cud, they had a divided hoof, and they were domestic. See, a giraffe chews the cud and he divides the hoof, but he's not domestic. So he wouldn't fit as a clean animal. And then you, so among clean animals, you took seven. You had two, uh, you had three pairs, which would give you six, and then you had one extra, which provides you with an animal for a sacrifice when you get off the ark. Then of the clean birds, and that's why you have seven, you, there was only one genus that was, uh, only one that was a, was clean. So you're not talking about an enormous number of animals here, and as I pointed out several weeks ago in John Wood Merapi's uh, groundbreaking study of, uh, the Ark, a feasibility study, he points out that, that there were probably only 16 to 17,000, I believe, uh, genii on the ark, which would mean that uh, our 16 to 17,000 animals on the ark if you reduce the kind to somewhere between a genus and a family. This allows for a lot more room, a lot less need for logistics and other things of that nature. So, But there's a, a repetition going through here because God wants to make sure that everyone understands how uh, you know, precise he is in his directions and in what is fulfilled. And this is vastly different. If you were to take the time to read some of the other flood stories from either an Akkadian or Babylonian or Sumerian background, you don't have this kind of a detail. There's a tremendous difference between the more mythological type of of uh, legends that have broken down in the post-flood era in contrast to what is described in the Bible. 
So God instructs them to take on the ark every clean animal by sevens, male and female, animals not clean to a male and his female, and also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. So what's the purpose? It's to keep the offspring alive on the face of the earth. Well, if it's not a universal worldwide cataclysm that's going to destroy everything else, why would you need to take anything on the ark? So the clear purpose within the ark narrative is to keep uh, uh, these descendants alive. Now, what that tells us is that every animal you see today goes back to the animals that were on the ark. Now, we'll pull out some implications of that in a little bit, but that means that every dog, every bird, every mammal that you see goes back to that grouping that was on the ark. Every uh, every cow, every sheep goes back to the seven that were on the ark. Now in verse 4, For after seven more days, God says, I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Now I've gone through this before, and I'll hit it again tonight. The the terms that emphasize universality. I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. So God has them get onto the ark a week before the rains are going to begin and before the flood begins. And in verse 5 we read, Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. This is the faith rest drill. Notice the faith rest drill isn't just sitting back and trusting God and waiting for something to happen. He trusts God and he gets on the ark. See, there's a passive aspect to the faith rest drill and there's an active aspect to the faith rest drill. If the Bible is telling us to do something, such as pray without ceasing, then it not only means that we trust God and claim the promise, but we keep praying. If, in this case, it is to build the ark, we tr- Noah is trusting God to deliver him, but he builds the ark. He trusts the Lord to provide for him, and he gets in the ark. He does according to everything that God had commanded him. This is the act of obedience. Somebody once said that, well, if you emphasize obedience, that's legalism. Now, it's only legalism if you're saying that obedience earns the approbation and blessing of God. It is not legalism if it's related to dependence upon God and trusting him to and doing what he said to do. And this is what Hebrews 11 is, 7 is talking about. By faith, that is, by dependence upon God, trusting in his uh, promises and in his direction, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in faith or in respect, out of respect, prepared an ark for the deliverance of his household, by which, that is the building of the ark, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which had been imputed to him according to faith. Now, starting in verse 6, we get the chronology of the flood. And this, again, demonstrates that this couldn't be just some little local flood. We've all seen local floods, or you're familiar with them historically. One of the most famous in American history is the Johnstown Flood in Pennsylvania. Uh, There have been a few other floods, local floods around the earth that have taken enormous uh, toll of human life. I think back in the late 60s and early 70s, there was an enormous flood that wiped out or had uh, tidal waves that wiped out and killed several million people in the south of India. Uh, The first time I was 
personally acquainted with the power of water in a flood was when a small river in uh, down in central Texas called the Guadalupe River had a uh, flash flood back in the late 70s, and it was noted in Texas because there was just the other side of the river, there was a Christian youth camp and a bus with a bunch of high school kids coming home and just left the camp and were crossing a low water crossing, and that flash flood hit that bus and and uh, uh, killed almost all of the kids. And the waters that normally that, that little river, uh, which I used to canoe a lot when, back when I did a lot of whitewater canoeing, uh, wasn't as wide as, as, as this church. I mean, it wasn't as wide as that center pew, half the center pew there. It was in a lot of places where it ran fast. It wouldn't be any more than 20 feet across. And then you'd have these little still water pools where it might be uh, 40 or 50 feet across and never uh, much deeper than maybe 20 feet at the most. And all of a sudden, the water was probably 75 to 80 feet high coming down this, these canyons and took out everything in front of it and uprooted 100-year-old oak trees and basically reshaped the topography of the area. And you, you just can't imagine the power of water in some small flood like that. And yet what we're talking about with the Noahic flood is not a flood that lasted one day or two days or even a week, but a flood where the waters covered everything for 150 days before they started coming down. And we cannot imagine the power, the, the hydrodynamics of that kind of a flood. And yet scientists have done quite a bit, the creation scientists have done quite a bit to help us understand uh, how that, how that operated. So in Genesis 7, 6, we start getting a look at the chronology of the flood. They enter the ark seven days before the flood begins. Genesis 7, 6, we're told now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Now, there's some discussion as to what, what kind of calendar was being used, and it really doesn't matter. The, the chronology here is based on Noah's birthday. He's 600 years old, so when, when the flood waters came upon the earth in verse 7, the repetition again. This is repeated from 6.18 and is repeated again in chapter 7.13. Whenever you find that much repetition, God the Holy Spirit is doing it for an emphatic reason. To bring the, po- the point home, Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wife, so just eight of them, entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, they went into the ark uh, to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded them. So these clean animals, as defined by Deuteronomy 14, 4 through 6, uh, entered the ark, and there is something supernatural going on here because God brought these animals to Noah. Now, a question that comes up is how did certain animals get there? How did the, mar- you know, always have some smart aleck who comes along and says, how did the marsupials get there from Australia? How did the kangaroos uh, get there and cross the, cross the water uh, into southeastern Asia and then make their way all the way to where Noah was. Well, first of all, we have to realize that the land masses before the flood weren't the same as they are today. The earth looked 
vastly different. In fact, there might not have even been a division of landmass between what we call the Western Hemisphere and the uh, Eastern Hemisphere. They, they, that separation and the continental drift probably occurred during the time that the Earth was covered by the floodwaters, if not immediately afterward. Secondly, we have to realize that what the operational term here is kinds, and that the kinds, all you needed was a kind to get on the ark. Even if the land masses were the same, and even if you got a kangaroo or off somewhere else, you could have had another related animal in the family that's what made it on the ark. In fact, the diversity that you had before the flood might not might have been greater might have it was definitely different than what it was after the flood see everything that we have today comes from what was the, those representative kinds on the ark and there could have been other branches or species from those representative kinds that had diversified in the antediluvian period we just don't know uh what that looked like furthermore we, after the flood, somebody always says, well, how did the kangaroos get off to Australia? And after the flood, there was a, probably for a couple of centuries, there was, that it was the time when we had the vast ice ages. So as the, the poles froze, the, the water in the oceans would shrink and various land bridges were open. And there's a shallow shelf that runs between Southeast Asia and Australia, and if the uh, during the period of the Ice Age, that would have been above water, and so certain animals could have made their way across those land bridges to Australia and to different islands. And there's also indication of some animals that have ridden on debris in the ocean over vast distances and ended up on some island somewhere. And that has happened in modern times under modern observation. So there are many different answers to the distribution of kinds or how the animals got to the ark. But I believe that God supernaturally moved these animals to the ark because just the massive problem of handling all of those animals. Now, in verse 10 we read, we've already seen that they entered the ark uh, seven days before the flood waters began. Verse 10, we read, it came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. Verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. So the chronological note here is on, on in the year 600, on the second month, the 17th day of the month, the rain began. So it gets on on the, let's say, the second month, 10th day. Seven days later, the event begins. And we're told that it's on this day all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were, were open. Now, this phrase, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, tells us a lot. Where did all of this water come from? We studied back in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, that the hydrospheres in the early earth were quite different from what they are today. When God created the earth on the third day, I mean on the third verse, 
which is the first day separated the waters above from the waters below. So somewhere out beyond the atmosphere, there was this vast collection of water. Now, we don't know how that was collected, whether it was a solid, whether it was frozen, whether it was ice crystals, whether it was just outside the Earth's atmosphere, something like uh, what you see on Venus where you have a complete cloud cover around the planet, or whether it was further out. There are some models that are being presented that this was taken further out into the into the uh, the universe. We don't know exactly where it was, but somewhere out surrounding the planet, there's this vast amount of water. And then there was this these underground channels on the earth. There, there was no rain during that time. In Genesis chapter 2, we're told that the earth was watered by a mist. So apparently there, there are these underground caverns and channels where water is cycled underground, and that was how the earth was watered, in a vastly different way from the way it's watered Today, and what happened at the flood is these underground channels burst open. You have the release of magma. You have underwater volcanoes, and today we study under volcanoes that erupt underwater and massive amounts of, uh, uh, of debris comes up through through those uh, through those volcanoes. You have magma that comes out. It heats the water around there. You have massive ice flows. You have just the the um, the, the sound waves that go out from that volcano and send out, uh, and they travel at, at a rate of 90 to 100 miles an hour through the water. And then when they hit water, for example, on the coast of a, of a continent where you have shall, a shallow, uh, the, where the water's shallow, that's when it hits a tidal wave or a tsunami, and can, you can produce a wave 100, 150 feet high traveling at 90 miles an hour. And you had this happening all over the earth. You don't just have one volcano erupting in one place. You have thousands and thousands erupting all over the place. And just recently you saw the film on Mount St. Helens, which is just just a microscopic laboratory for what was taking place all over over the earth. When Mount St. Helens erupted, it was it expended the, the power of 20,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs. And in just the five months following that eruption, there were two canyons that were formed, Step Canyon and Lewitt Canyon, that were formed in just a matter of months. There was a third explosion on June 12th that also sent mud flows down the side of Mount St. Helens at the rate of between 50 and 90 miles an hour. We're, we're talking mud flows that move at the rate of a hurricane-force wind. And this that's just on one volcano that really wasn't that powerful of a volcano. So if you take that and you extrapolate that out to thousands and thousands of volcanoes, some underwater, some above ground, that that's all happening at the same time as, as the Noahic flood, you just get a small idea of the force of what is described very briefly in Genesis 7:11 that the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened and then the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights now all of the water that came onto the earth was then absorbed and is now fills up the various uh, ocean basins of the earth but there was a different system before the flood because 
uh, that put a tremendous amount of water on the earth, and probably you had initially you had these underwater volcanoes blasting off, and they were sending out enormous amounts of uh, pyroclastic flows uh, underwater, and you know just billions and trillions of of uh, cubic yards of rock and mud that are sent out and creating all kinds of of reverberations in in the water uh, underwater and as they do this, it sets up like, like flows. It would be like stacking pancakes on top of one another. And so the ocean floor is what's happening there. It's being built up so that the water that was in the oceans is being pushed up, and it's flooding the, the land as well as the enormous amount of water coming down. Now, how do we know that that water is still on the earth? Because if you were to take all of the atmospheric moisture that's on the earth today and precipitate it out, you would have a maybe a two-day rainstorm, and it would produce two inches of rain. So what's described in the Scripture indicates that there was something vastly different from the kind of meteorological system that we have today. It is an intense rainfall that lasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And, of course, one of the things that, that one model that has been presented on this is that when... when, when uh, when rain precipitates out, if you have uh, moisture, moisture in the air, uh, water vapor in the air, then, w- then it has to condense on a dust particle to precipitate out. So the mechanics would be that, and it, notice the order of the text, first the fountains of the deep burst open, then the floodgates of the sky are open. And that would make sense that you have all these uh, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of volcanoes erupting simultaneously, throwing enormous amounts of volcanic ash into the upper atmosphere, which then provides a mechanism for water vapor to condense on and precipitate out onto the earth. So it it makes sense. It's in the right order. If the writer had reversed it, it wouldn't fit the scientific scenario. Now, verse 12, we read that the this is the next step. Forty days and forty nights, the rain fell upon the earth. And then verse 13, we, have, we back out and we describe what's going on with the family. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. This goes back to day one. You have repetition. They and every beast of its kind and all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind. Now, the, the every beast after its kind are the wild animals. All the cattle after their kind refer to domesticated animals. Every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. So this excludes fish. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. So they go on the ark, and it's God who closes and seals the door. It is God who protects us in salvation. This is a a type of our eternal security. Just as God put Noah in the ark, sealed him, and supernaturally protects and secures him through this event, you can imagine 100, 150-foot tidal waves that that ark's handling and, and winds that are incredible. Before this time, they didn't have winds, but with the temperature change that would come as a result of the uh, climatic change from not having a, 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 a any kind of a canopy any longer, you now are going to have uh, incredible winds towards the end of this period 
that would create huge waves, and the ark can ride out all of these, but God is the one who is protecting them. In verse 17, Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. What we have here is a description of a rapid rise. The water comes up very quickly. It increases, which means it rises or or lifts up, and very quickly it lifts up the ark so that it rose above the earth. Verse 18 Now, remember, the ark is at least 44 feet high, and it's heavily loaded. So the the water rises very rapidly and picks it up and begins to move it. Verse 18, the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Verse 19, the water prevailed more and more upon the earth. That means it rose more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The, the verb that is translated prevailed is the Hebrew word gabar, which is related to the word for a mighty man or a warrior, the uh, gevarim. So the gavar means to prevail or to rise or to exercise power, and it rose more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered, and... We have to make a note here as to how high were the mountains. There's a parallelism between verses 19 and verse 20, talking in both places about the mountains of that antediluvian world. These are not as high as the mountains we have today. For example, Ararat was over 17,000 feet high. Mount Everest is over 25,000 feet high. That's uh, Ararat's over three miles, and Everest is over five miles. There's not enough water on the earth today to cover them with the ocean basins as deep as they are today and the mountains being as high as they are. However, if everything were leveled, then water would cover the entire earth to a depth of 10,000 feet. What you have is an interesting scenario in Psalm 104, verses 6 through 9. So hold your place here in Genesis 7, and let's turn to Psalm 104. This is a psalm praising God for His as the Creator and for His providential care of the earth. In verse 5 we read, You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the voice of your thunder they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. Literally, it should read, the mountains went up. It is not they went up. It's not talking about they, the water. It's talking about the mountains went up and the valleys went down to the place which you had founded for them. In verse 8, you have set a boundary that they may not pass over. See, that's why this has to be taken. Verses 6 through 9 are talking about the flood, not creation. If they were talking about creation then God setting a boundary uh, was violated at the flood. It is at the flood that the boundary is set when God promises that there will no longer be a flood. 
And so the Hebrew should be translated in verse 8, the mountains went up and the valleys went down, indicating that during the time of the flood you have these massive geologic pressures that push up the mountains as well as create uh, the deep valleys into which the oceans and the water would flow at the end of the flood. In verse 20 we read, The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, that is, higher than the mountains, and the mountains were were covered. 15 cubits is 22 feet, which is apparently the draft of the ark. That's how deep it would ride in the water. So with the water 15 feet, at minimum of 15 feet above the highest mountain that rose up, it would allow the ark to pass over uh, all of the land and not become grounded. Now, it's interesting, one argument I ran across from a local flood advocate was that, well, if the mountains are 17,000 feet and they're up that high and they landed on Ararat, which was 17,000 feet, approximately 17,000 feet high, then they would have sure had a problem with oxygen at that height. I don't know if you, I've done a little mountain climbing up around 14,000 footers and 14,000 feet and it's pretty thin, 17,000 feet's even thinner. But see, that's all measured relative to what? Sea level. So if the water's up that high, then, then you're not above sea level, and so there's plenty of oxygen. Numbers 21. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Notice that all flesh. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. Same terminology that you have in Genesis chapter 2, Neshema, the breath of life, that, that life is related to, to breathing. The breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he, God, blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. They were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. Then we have the next chronological notation in verse 24. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. So you have a period of 110 days of rising water and 40 days where it's stable, which adds up to 150 days when the ark finally rests. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth. This is where you have the first mention of heavy winds, and the water subsided. So now we've got ten day, uh, seven days before they go in the ark, 40 days and 40 nights of rain, uh, plus 110 days of rising. So we've got 150 days total uh, in the ark plus the other seven. So this is, this is roughly five months. This is when the ark rests, but it's another six or seven months before they can come out of the ark. So that tells you this is when you have all of this geologic upheaval going on underneath, underneath the water. We come then to chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. Now, that doesn't mean God forgot. This is simply a uh, figure of speech, an anthropomorphism, indicating that God now turns his attention to Noah. That's how this phrase is used throughout the Scripture. God remembers something. That means God now turned his attention to deliver someone. And in this case, it's Noah and all the beasts and the cattle that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. 
Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. Then in verse 3, And the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days the water decreased. That's our notice here in 8.3, that at the end of 150 days. That 150 days is a combination of the 40 days and nights of rain and 110 days of the water just rising. And part of the reason it would rise was because you had a combination of this, this volcanic activity at the base laying down these pancakes in the ocean, pushing the water level up, and you have continued, uh, the continued pressure from the fountains of the deep, but it's not raining anymore. Then in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark comes to rest on on Mount Ararat, that's 717 uh, of his 600th year. And then in verse 5, we're told the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So you've got from the 17th of the 7th month to the first day of the 10th month, which is almost eight and a half months, where the water's receding and you still don't see any other mountaintops. Now, in Ararat, you're up pretty high, so the other mountains around there are pretty low, but that means that it's a, that, that water took a long time to recede. And they, so the tops of the mountains are now visible on the tenth month. You've been in the ark since the middle of the second month, so this is, what, um, seven and a half months. And we read in verse, uh, seven, that it came, or verse 6, then it came about at the end of 40 days, that's 40 more days, that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. So he's, 40 days goes by and he then sends out a raven. So now you're into the middle of the 11th month. And he sent out a raven and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. So the raven is able to find a lot of debris floating around in the water out there and he lands on that but he doesn't come back to the ark. And then after this 40 days, we're told in verse 8, then Noah sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. So he sends out the first dove on the 17th day of the 11th month. But in verse 9, the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him in the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. And he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. Very realistic description here. He waits another seven days and sends out the second dove. And again, he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth and vegetation was beginning to, to grow again. Then he waits out another seven days and he releases the third dove. But in verse 12, she does not return to him. And in verse 13, we have the note, Then it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month. So this is uh, <clears throat> a month and a half short of a year. The waters dried up from the earth, and Noah removes the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. So on the 10th day of the 12th month, he uncovers the hatch. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Now he went in on the 17th, on the 10th of the month, so he's in a, a year 
which is 360 days and 17 days. So that means three, he's in there for 377 days, or we'd say is a little over a year on our calendar. They had a 360-day calendar. We have a 365-day calendar. That's how long they are on the ark. So this is not some little local flood episode, or none of it makes sense. It becomes totally absurd if we don't take it in its according to a plain, literal hermeneutic. So let's just hit about 20 review points, which we'll go through fairly quickly because most of it you've already got. Using the principle of a plain, point number one, using the principle of a plain, literal hermeneutic, this passage can only refer to a universal flood. Unless you're coming up with something that is just figurative, you can't end up with a universal flood. Second, Expressions involving the universality of the flood and its effects, such as all and every and words of that nature, occur more than 30 times in Genesis 6 through 9. More than 30 times, that's a lot of emphasis on the universality of the flood. Third, a 40-day rain would be impossible under current meteorological conditions. Most you get a two-day rain with about two inches of water. Fourth, the term for the flood in the Hebrew is mavul. And Mabul is used exclusively of Noah's flood. It's never used of any other event in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew word shetef, which is the word for a local flood, is not used anywhere regarding Noah's flood. It's, uh, Mabul is used in Genesis 6 through 11 and in Psalm 29:10. Fourth point, or fifth point, the construction, outfitting, and stocking of the ark would be unnecessary in a local flood. Why not just move? Sixth, all the mountains, quote, under the whole heaven, unquote, were inundated and under at least 15 cubits, that is 22 feet of water. This indicates a worldwide event. Seventh, the mountains are all covered, and the word there is kasa in the Hebrew, which means to overwhelm, to conceal, to cover, and it's used sometimes of putting on clothes, of covering something up. So Genesis 7:19 says that all of the mountains were concealed. Eight. The text uses a double superlative, all the high mountains under all the heavens. That is not a local idea. Ninth, in a local flood, the animals could escape or be taken to another area. As, but in verse 21, you have to save some to preserve the gene pool of each kind. In verse 10, every man dies in accordance with the purpose of the flood. In a local flood, most people would escape. Eleventh, all that possess the, uh, that's the Hebrew, nishpat ruach chayim, the breath of the spirit of life, died, except for the eight in the ark. Second, uh, twelfth, no local flood would continue to rise for 150 days. As soon as it stops raining, the water starts to go down. But what we have here is it stops raining, the water keeps going up. Thirteenth, even after the waters began to abate and the ark grounded on the highest of the mountains of Ararat, it's another two and a half months before the tops of other mountains could be seen. That wouldn't be true in a local flood. Fourteenth, even after four months of receding flood waters, the dove sent out by Noah could find no dry land on which to land. Now, a dove can fly pretty far, I think, and so this would have to be a heck of a universal flood. But the local guys say, well, it just flooded as far as Noah could see, so he thought it was universal. Also, God's working with self-deception now. 
Fifteenth, it's an entire year or a little more before enough land had been exposed to permit the occupants to leave the ark. Sixteenth, uh, the New Testament uses a unique term, cataclysmos, cataclysm, to describe the flood, not the usual Greek word for flood. So neither the Old Testament or the New Testament use local flood terminology to describe Noah's flood. Seventeenth, new cosmological and meteorological conditions come into existence after the flood. You now have sharply defined seasons, according to Genesis 8.22. You now have a rainbow that's a promise that he won't cause this kind of flood again. But see, if this kind of flood is a local flood, then God breaks his promise about every spring. Eighteenth, man's longevity began a long, slow decline, which follows a a perfect... um, a uh, perfect curve, if you plot it out on a graph, a uh, man's longevity begins a long, slow decline immediately after the flood. Nineteenth, later biblical writers accept the idea that this is a universal flood. Both Old Testament writers as well as Jesus and New Testament writers accept this as a worldwide flood. If it's not, then that impugns the veracity of a lot of Scripture. Might as well throw the whole thing out. Twentieth, the Lord Jesus Christ accepted the historicity and universality of the flood, even making it the climactic sign and type of the coming worldwide judgment at the end of the tribulation when he returns. Matthew twenty four, thirty seven to thirty nine, and Luke seventeen, twenty six to twenty seven. And those twenty points some give us our summation. Now next time we will come back and look at what happens in Genesis eight twenty. When they come off the ark, build the altar, and God begins to establish a covenant with them. And this is our first real uh, detail of a covenant. So we'll begin a study of covenants and the Noahic covenant next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to see how it all hangs together, how it fits perfectly, how uh, your, your word is not the same as these mythological uh, accounts are these distorted legends that have been handed down through oral history, but your word bears the very mark of your authority and your essence, and that it is absolutely true. Father, we pray that we would be encouraged by Noah's example of trust, his understanding of your word, your plans, and your purposes, that we may follow that example in our own spiritual lives. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.